When we turn to the book of Daniel, we are reminded not only of the influence of this book, Daniel, but the greater library of books that Daniel has found, which we call the Bible. The Bible's impact on culture is altogether astounding. It cannot be minimized. It cannot be limited. And it shows up even in our language, in our conversation sometimes. How many of us outside the four walls of a church building has heard somebody say, I feel like I'm in the lion's den? How many of us have ever heard someone say that? Or I could see the handwriting on the wall. Or I feel like I'm walking through this fiery furnace. We use this language and this language is rooted directly in this book we're about to study. So much so that even some of our names are named after the person that is the the book of Daniel. We are shaped by the language of Scripture, so much so that we even name each other after the names in Scripture. But before we get to lions, and before we get to handwriting, and before we get to fiery furnaces, we need to enter into the world of Daniel. See it as much as we can, as we study its history, as we study its theology, as we study where it falls in God's great, grand, redemptive story. Because what makes the lion's den and what makes the handwriting, what makes the fiery furnace so powerful is, yes, all of those things are remarkable, but also you need to understand that these are stories that don't take place in Israel. These are not stories that take place in the boundaries of God's physical kingdom of Israel. No, this is happening to people that are living as strangers and as exiles because a foreign enemy has come, robbed them of their home, stripped them of their national identity, and is trying to reprogram even their faith. Can we imagine and can we envision what it must be like to be a young man, probably 17 years old, like Daniel, and to see what he sees? Let's look at Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. So excited once again to study this book with you. Here's the first verse, very important to understand all the verses that follow. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. We can read history without really understanding what it's saying. This is a shocking, devastating truth that God's people who had been created by God, chosen by God, saved, persevered, and then, yes, God created a nation for them. He had given them his word. He had covenanted to never leave them nor forsake them. And now it would seem that this enemy has come in and sieged their city, stolen their king, and as we're going to see, is robbing them of their most talented people. 
Could you envision it? We just celebrated that somber day of September 11th, 2001, 17 years later, and that day still brings back emotions. That day still brings back sadness and shock. Can you envision, though, the entire country being taken over, our capital being besieged, our monuments set ablaze, this foreign terrorist enemy attacking the White House and taking the president as prisoner? Can we imagine this? How devastating this would be. And that's just political. But this isn't just a political truth. It's a spiritual truth. Because in the end, Israel is God's chosen people. Has God forgotten his people? Has God forgotten his promise for what? Two things. Land. He has promised that land. And kings. He made a covenant with David. He made a covenant with the king of Judah that someone from David's line would always remain in power. Has God forgotten? Has God failed? Is God, oh gosh, listen to this, too weak to fight against the Babylonians? Is God too inept to battle against Nebuchadnezzar? In fact, what we're going to see is that this was all part of God's plan. This was all the result of God's people trusting, not in the God that created them, but trusting in the external religious articles that God had given them and losing their first love. The first verse is historical. The second verse is theological. Let's look at it. We're going to see that this is a battle not just of nations, but of gods. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Let's stop there. You see, what the Babylonians would do is that they would not only besiege a city and an enemy territory, they would not only lay waste to its army and to its structures, but they would also deport the best of its people and then mock and shame their God. When they bring in these vessels, when they bring in these artifacts, these religious identity markers, and they place them in the temples of their gods, many scholars believe that the chief god of the Babylonians, Marduk, they are bringing in these articles. We don't know if it was the ark. We don't know what it was. It doesn't say. But they bring it in, and what it's communicating is more important. That Marduk is greater than Yahweh. That the gods of Babylon are stronger than the gods of Israel. This is a shame that when it's physically done and presented, leads to despair. Let's use an example from history. Can we pull up this slide, Josh? This is an example of when Nazi Germany came in and they overthrew France. And if there is one identity marker in France, it is, what is this behind me? The Eiffel Tower. 
And what Hitler wanted to do was to let the whole world know by plastering on one of their national identity markers that this Eiffel Tower no longer belonged to the people of France anymore. This Eiffel Tower now belonged not to the French, but to the fascists. Not to the people of Paris, but to the people and the followers of Hitler. So you see the big V right there. And what is pronounced underneath the V is Germany is victorious on all fronts. Brainwashing, shaming, intimidating. It would seem by verses 1 and 2, not Germany, but Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar is successful on all fronts. That's the story of Daniel. That's why this story is going to be so inspiring. Because in the same way that a jeweler puts a bright, beautiful diamond behind or in front of the darkest backdrop, when we do that, when we understand how bleak and how dark and how desperate the backdrop is, then the beautiful light of the diamond shines forth even more. When we dive into the book of Daniel, we are reminded that God has not failed, God has not forgotten. In fact, that when he judges his people, when he disciplines his own, it's for his glory and their good. In fact, I would submit to you that Daniel and his friends, by God's grace, are more faithful than any of the kings that sat in the luxury of power back in their own land. In fact, if you study church history at all, you'll know that the church is healthiest and most vibrant when? Not when it's comfortable, but when it's persecuted. I heard a missionary friend of mine say that in all of his travels throughout the persecuted church in foreign lands where people could die, at a minute's notice, because of their witness of Christ, their life could be forfeit because of their Christianity. We think about that? Do we pray for them? Here's what he said. He said, of those churches and of those peoples living in those countries, he said there's two books that they constantly return to. The first one is Revelation, which speaks of God returning, speaks of the victory of Christ speaks that God will and does remember the blood of his martyrs, but it's also Daniel. Daniel and Revelation, why? Because here's Daniel. He's a stranger in a strange land. He's in exile, living in foreign enemy territory, and God gives him the ability to stay faithful to his God and not to defile his faith. In the end, as we will see, these men, these young men, are wonderful, exemplary examples of what it means to be exiles, but they all lead and point to another exile. Let's keep reading. Verse 3, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's place and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Let's stop right there. 
For as violent and as vile as the Babylonian approach to global dominance was, that they had military strength, they also had a philosophy of assimilation. And this is what helped them in their pursuits of dominance. Because they wouldn't just attack a country, then leave. They would attack a country, take its best people back to their own country, and then turn enemies into followers. I mean, I, I can't envision this. I can't imagine someone attacking the United States of America, laying waste to my country, and then being deported to serve in a foreign land, and then at some point being in the service of the one who just attacked my home. All of us would probably say never, right? The Babylonians knew this. And that's why they would take young people who, let's be honest, can be a little bit more impressionable, and they would begin this process of assimilation. They would strip away everything that they knew and try to replace it with what the Babylonians believed and what Nebuchadnezzar would say. And I'm going to ask, as we walk through these verses, do we see the same thing today? That this is not an overt attack from an enemy, but yes, a subverted, a subverse infiltration of our culture. Where yes, our kids, our youth, ourselves are being assimilated into a pagan idolatry. Yes, there is. So what's the first step? We saw it. They separate them. So they come into a foreign territory. They've come into a foreign country. They demolish them. They humiliate their gods. And then what happens is they bring them home. So they're separated from their family. They're separated from their home. And they are immersed in a new pagan culture. Separation. And then after separation, it's indoctrination. Can everyone say indoctrination? Very good. We see that these are used in verse 4. And as we continue to read, what happens is at the end of verse 4, they teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Indoctrination is putting doctrine into someone. The word means doctor, to teach. So they are going to try and strip away everything that they used to believe and then replace it with what they want them to believe. They're going to immerse them in the language of the Chaldeans and the belief of their gods. Does this happen today? Okay. <laughs> this next thing I'm about to say is probably going to offend a lot of us, okay? So just pray for your pastor. <laughs> Needs to be said. Needs to be said. Um, the Babylonian Empire came and attacked. It was an overt, oppressive force that came in and robbed them of their youth and of their best. Now, do we have something today where it's not overt and oppressive, and in fact, we do it willingly? Oh, boy. We not only do it willingly, but we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to do it. Yes. What's it called? College. Now, disclaimers. Ready? The greatest commandment in all the Bible is to love. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your strength, all of your soul, and what? 
all of your mind. Literally, literally, like, our hope is in Christ, but the witness is a book, right? We are people that gather around the teaching and the studying of truth. We should be people passionate for truth, loving truth, always wanting to grow in a greater knowledge of truth. Amen? College is not bad per se. What college has become and what college can be for your family and for our kids. What happens? Just bear with me now. We send them far away. They don't have family. They don't have church. They don't have everything that they're used to. No one's teaching them the Bible. No one's praying with them at the meals. And what they're immersed in, for the most part, there's Christian colleges, there's some decent non-Christian colleges, is that they are stripped away of everything that they were brought up to believe at a young age, around Daniel's age, right? This is taught as fairy tales. What is objectively true is that there is no objective truth besides the fact that this, the Bible, is not objectively true. They're stripped away of their theology, of their identity of Christians, and what happens? This is not by accident. Listen. Is there a reason why colleges are synonymous with hedonism and partying and going crazy sexually? No. It's directly connected. If you can strip away everything that a young person believes, replace it with a humanist, secular ideology, and then fix not only their attentions on something humanist, but their affections, their desires, and think there's no consequences for your actions, then you got the whole person. Separation. Indoctrination. Number three, confusion. Let's look at it, shall we? Verse five. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Let's stop there. Life seems pretty good in Babylon. Wow. I mean, if I'm Daniel, I'm looking around. I'm saying, I have influence. I'm getting a title. I'm getting my master's degree. And look at this food. The food is better here than it was back in Israel. Maybe it's not so bad around here. This is a revelation that a lot of our kids have. Where we send them out to college, ill-prepared not only to understand truth, but ill-prepared to decipher deception. In the sense that they can go and initially, it's fun. Is sin fun for a season? Does sin feel good initially? Listen, there's a reason why temptation is tempting. There's a reason why deception is deceiving. Because the enemy takes something good and baits the hook. So we would nibble. And then all of a sudden, when it's hooked, then he has us. It's something good that he's dangling in front of us, right? The Lord created physical intimacy for marriage. The Lord created us to be hungry for knowledge. The Lord created us to work and to, and to build lives and to cultivate and, yes, to have vocations and careers. This is all good stuff. But what tends to happen is that 
we can fall into the trap of forgetting what is true and what is false, what is good and what is great, and the difference between momentary pleasure and true lasting joy. Because what tends to happen is that we partake, the, uh, the, the hook is baited, we bite, but then we get hooked on the bait. We continually come back to it because we're hoping that it would give us a little bit more of that first taste. We keep running back to it because we're hoping that the freedom that we thought we could find would be found if we just have more of it, right? If we just keep going back to it. It promises fun. It promises freedom. And then what it does is it robs us of joy and it leads to bondage. This has always been part of the enemy's plan. Separation, indoctrination, confusion, and then a new identity. Let's look at verse 6. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them their names. Gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Let's stop right there. Is this just like, hey, you're in Babylon. You want a new name? It's like the cool thing to do. No. This is part of the assimilation process. What is one of the first things you learn about somebody when you meet them? Their name. Your name speaks to your identity. It speaks to the person that God used to bring you into this world. It speaks to their hearts and their desires for you. And sure enough, these Jewish names did just that. Daniel means Elohim is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who is like Elohim. And Azariah means Yahweh helps. What do they want to do? Get rid of all of that. Strip it down completely in your mind, and your heart, even your name. Get rid of everything that's going to connect you to your faith in the one true God. And we're going to give you new names. And these new names are derivatives of pagan Babylonian gods. The last step of them transferring their allegiance was to transform their identity. New names. When we come to Christ. Similar to how Simon becomes Peter and Saul becomes Paul. We come to Christ as rebels and he makes us sons. We come to Christ as people who are unloved, knowing we are loved. We come to Christ as exiles and orphans and he is our father and gives us a home. Part of the process is to understand who defines who you are. Do you know that? Is it a college? And once again, I hope that our kids would go to college. I hope that our kids would be the example that Daniel's being. The solution to this is to not send the kids away at all. Eventually, they got to grow up. Eventually, they have to be a witness in this hostile world for their Savior. No, the point is to be aware to be 
prayerful and to ask the Lord to give them conviction, courage, and discernment. Because what's going to happen is they're not going to find their identity as a Christian anymore, right? That name, they used to call themselves Christian. I'm not just talking about college now. I'm talking about any prodigal that leaves home. What is their new name? What's their new identity? It's not found in Christ. It could be found by their sexual orientation. It could be found by their vocation. It could be found by their sports team. We're all looking for identity markers. We're all looking for people and things to put our trust in. So the question is that Daniel beckons when everything's stripped away, when you lose your home and you lose your comforts and you even lose some of your religious traditions, who are you? When everything is stripped away, we come to a somber realization of who we've always been. Daniel is about to do something bold. Daniel's about to do something courageous, church. And I would submit to you that this isn't something he does in the moment, but this is something that the Lord's been doing in him for a long time. Sinclair Ferguson put it like this. He said, present heroicism cannot be explained apart from past faithfulness. Present heroicism cannot be explained apart from past faithfulness. Because here's Daniel. He is about to do something that will lead to him potentially getting in trouble. He will not cross the line. He will not defile himself. He will glorify his God and stay true to his convictions. May that be the prayer not only of our youth, but ourselves as well. Let's look at verse 8, shall we? But Daniel resolved that he would not. What did it say? Daniel what? Resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Daniel is staying true to what he knows is good. So whether it is he's not defiling himself because whatever they're eating would be a violation of the Old Testament dietary laws, it could be that. It could be that these food and this feast was something that was sacrificed to a pagan idol, it could be that. I almost wonder, and a lot of scholars tend to agree, that yes, it could be those things, but at some point, he was drawing a line to say, I am not going to be assimilated. I'm just not. The crowd's going this way. This even looks enticing. That even looks interesting. But I'm done. I'm not going to defile myself. I'm not going to defame my God but I'm going to stay true to my convictions. And it was a lifetime, even at a young man's age, that allowed him to do that. I like how Rod Rogers puts it. He says this. I want everyone to listen. Ready? Cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Consensus asks the question, is it popular? Courage asks the question, is it right? I have resolved myself to not defile myself. How did Joshua put it? As for me and my house, we will follow the Lord. Where's your line? Where's our line? 
Because the culture is going to try and blur the line, push the line back culturally. The line was a whole lot different 20, 30, 40 years ago than it is today. I care less about the cultural line, and I care more about the biblical line. Daniel understood that there was a price to pay. Even before the language is used, he understood that we're called to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. And that's why Daniel's not even the best example of what it means to be an exemplary witness in a place of exiles. No, Daniel is not about Daniel. Daniel's about Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. The Old Testament anticipates the good news of Jesus. The four Gospels proclaim the good news of Jesus. And the rest of the epistles in Revelation declare what Jesus has done. When we study through Daniel, you're going to be amazed to find out what is the theme of this book? The good news of the kingdom of God. It's all about kings and kingdoms, prophecies and visions. It's the same good news that Jesus will cultivate, culminate, and eventually consummate. What's that? That God, in his perfect holiness, could not have fellowship with people who are lost and awash in unholiness. That God is perfectly right. That there is no cosmic broom that's going to sweep our sin underneath the carpet. No, because God is good. He cannot allow those into his presence and he cannot have true reconciliation with people that aren't good. Meaning that simply this, we needed God and God himself to not only be our example, but to be our savior. That Jesus Christ came in our midst. He was a stranger in a strange land. He was willing to live as an exile in a world that hated him. Did they hate Jesus? The world hated Jesus, right? Would Jesus be crucified even today? Absolutely. He lived as one that he knew he was going to have to sacrifice and suffer for. And why did he do it? Out of obedience, love, and for the glory of his Father. But why did he do it? Look to your left and look to your right. Jesus was tempted by none other than the enemy Satan himself. It wasn't in Babylon. It was in the wilderness. For 40 days and 40 nights, he did not eat. And then Satan, Lucifer, the accuser, the liar, comes and he tempts him with what? The same thing Daniel's tempted with. Food. He rebukes the enemy. Quotes scripture. and Reminds him he should not test the Lord his God. That happened in wilderness. We're going to conclude our study by remembering what happened in a garden. What happened when Jesus was presented not with the cup of the king of Nebuchadnezzar, but he was presented with another cup. It's the cup that he knew was the cup of God's just judgment and right wrath. And he knew how much it was going to cost. He knew how dark the world's sin is. And he cried out. And he said, Lord, if possible, take this cup from me. 
but the same way that Jesus would not take the food and the cup of the enemy. He did take this cup from his father. He said, not my will, but what church? Your will be done. And he drank it every last drop. Why? Out of love for you. So that while we are exiles in this foreign land, we are strangers here, longing and waiting to be reconciled with our Father, our Savior, and enter into that perfect final promised land that you can know that even if we're not always a perfect example, He was, He is, and He always shall be. When everything's stripped away, who are we? Let's learn from Daniel. Because even though he lost the temple, his king, and his country, he knew his God was not dead. And he knew that regardless of wherever he was, that God was calling him to be a faithful witness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that these uh, truths in your word would be rooted as seeds in our hearts and our minds, and that seed would grow even now. God, I thank you that as your word says, that your word never returns void. So, Lord, if people are looking for grace, would they look to you? If they are looking for courage, would they look to you? If they feel like everything is being stripped away from them and they're not sure who they are anymore, would they not look to their stuff? Would they not look to their past? Would they not look to anything else but the Savior who bled and died for them on the cross? In the spirit of prayer, Coltsdale Community Church, I'm going to invite you to please rise. Let's stand together. All right, so here's the response, church. Here's the response. Let it be a beginning.